I guess that'll make this an episode of Edwin Star Trek because we'll be asking ourselves, war, what is it good for? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Well, we're probably going to squeeze a couple episodes of podcast out of it, and they certainly got a lot of episodes of Star Trek about it. Let's get rolling. I'm Paul Byron. This is Gay Space Communism, your favorite leftist Star Trek debacle, where we are going to talk about, well, breaking news, everybody. So I'm like, yeah, no breaking news, damn it. I'm as always joining you uh, through your tiny ear things as Paul Byron, and with me, of course, as the usual team of explorers. Sound off. Hey, everybody. I'm Amy. It's so nice to be talking to you again. I'm Rachel. I continue to be gay. <laughs> I'm Corey, and I don't know what the hell I am this week. You know what? Actually, I do know. This week, 100%, I am communism, and it's because I have a lot of feelings and a lot of things to say about what's going on in the news, which is brought, what has brought us here today. Power clean through what we've been watching, which is, of course, as you noticed, Ben, the increase in COVID numbers, but also the withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan, sort of again for the first yeah. time, but not really. Go on, please, Corey. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we're doing a rare kind of episode here. We usually record these months in advance, but we're actually going to um, be putting this one out next week. For uh, anyone who has uh, eyeballs and has been on the internet or near a television recently, you are aware of the fact that the United States is finally pulling out of Afghanistan and bringing an end to the longest war in our history. And it has immediately turned into a massive shit show. And that is not surprising to anyone except apparently Joe Biden. Literally everybody knew this is what was going to happen. Like we all knew this. I personally, I knew it because I was in Afghanistan for three years. I worked there as a defense contractor and it has been an incredibly surreal experience over the last few weeks of watching all these these cities and these places that I have been to featured in the news as being overrun by the Taliban, falling back into the hands of the Taliban, fighting in the streets. Oh, maybe in case you missed it, the U.S. decided to do some airstrikes again. So like on our way out the door, like, haha, here's a few last bombs ready to go. I mean, it, it is it is just it is such a catastrophe. Look, they go bad, Corey. If you just leave them sitting for long well, I mean, enough, if they you go don't bad. use the bombs this year, you won't get more bombs next year. Right. Well, you know, and, you know, we can't let the bombs expire. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, like, please. God. please, let's let all the bombs expire. Right. When you think about it, leaving all the bombs behind for the Taliban to pick up is using them. Well, that's, <laughs> this, is, this is also true. Yeah, but if you have to drop them out of a plane that they don't have, then that's just yeah. a thing that sits that like, I mean, it's like giving me a particle accelerator. I mean, I they like instantly took over the entire country. I'm reasonably confident they can get their hands on a plane at this point. Yeah, but it's super hard to fly those. I don't know. Anyway, case you're still case. Yeah, right. super hard to fly them unless it's into the fucking Twin Towers, Paul. No, the Taliban didn't even do that is the problem. That's, that wasn't even their thing. No, 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 they actually did. A lot of people don't know this. So I've actually been refreshing myself on on some of our so long and illustrious military history. Oh, no, 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 no. If you're talking about the Twin Towers, yes, that was Al-Qaeda. Oh, God. Okay. okay. Um, you're just are saying the Taliban does know how to fly planes, is what yes, you're saying. Yes, and right? they had yeah. planes, and they had the planes in the past. So in, well, never in mind. the past. Well, and now they have, like, fighter planes. Yeah. I mean, so, even you know. if those bombs just sit there and go bad and spring a leak and leach toxic chemicals into the groundwater, haven't they still done their job? Haven't they still accomplished the USA's goal of totally destabilizing the region and making sure children can't grow up there happy? 
And there's also the fact that uh, there's a massive trove of biometric data that has just fallen mm. into the hands of the Taliban, which uh, our, our good friend, friend of the show, Damien, was um, very angrily tweeting about, understandably and justifiably. This is biometric data that identifies facial recognition, fingerprints, eye scans of, of the interpreters mm. who worked with U.S. troops and, and other personnel. And that is all in the hands of the Taliban now. So good job. When I say we should never create a technology that we don't want our worst enemy to be able to use against us. If this is not a perfect microcosm. Well, no one had a plan for what if we lose it. Okay, I think that that after they rounded up all the trannies in Berlin, I think we should have learned as a species not to gather this kind of information on citizens for their own good, (laughs) quote unquote. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but like really though, really though, like surveillance is bad because that information can be used by anybody. Exactly. Keeping that mm-hmm. kind of information is inherently dangerous to people. And like there are times when it's kind of useful, right? Like medical coding. I joke a lot about how it's like a function of capitalism, but actually medical coding is about international study. They want to be able to track mm-hmm. things, right? And so that makes sense. That's a time where it makes sense to do something that's tracking. But even then it's not individuated. You know, it's like they just have how many times mm-hmm. this particular code pinged positive. Frankly, I don't even trust that. I mean, that database in Berlin was kept with the best of intentions. And people I know that work in academia, especially biology, will ask me, why don't you want to participate in studies? If we got this information out there, people would not be so transphobic. Uh Uh-uh, it goes the other way around. You change the world, then I'll participate in your study once it's safe. Nope, no, no. People are just going to be assholes regardless. Mm -hmm. We know that. Sorry, we've gotten way off track. So we were talking about war and that being a really cool idea we keep doing for my whole life. I don't no, yeah, I don't um, think we've actually gotten that far off track because the world is unsafe, but also a lot of the worst people out there use the world being unsafe as an excuse to be even more unsafe. And that's what really this war was about. Yeah. Okay. So case in point on that and talking about the worst people using the world being unsafe as an excuse to do more Mm. war. Let me introduce to you every pundit on cable news right now. Literally all of them. They're all just like, oh, you know what the problem is, is we didn't stay there long enough. What we need to do is go back and bomb some more. Yeah. It's like they want to get more manufacturing consent points. Like the war's over. We're done manufacturing consent for it. I want to back up. Let's just stop that whole conversation for one second. Corey, you and I were grown adults. Actually, we were all, but a lot of the listeners may not have been grown as adults from the moment that it started, which was October 7th, 2001. The building was still on fire for another two months. Yeah. Are you kidding? Like, and you're like, all of us are sitting there going, well, what? Wait, hold on. But, and nope, we just, and these are the same guys that are on the news now. Yeah. Like, please. I'm going to insert a point of contention here. That is actually not when it started. I may be the only person on the panel who is old enough to have been alive when it started, which was 1979, when we started a CIA covert proxy war, where we were intentionally destabilizing that country, basically to fuck with the Soviets. At which point the Soviets entered the country? Yeah. 
Exactly. And we did it entirely because we didn't like the fact that there was growing influence and spread of communism and Marxism in Afghanistan, that it was gaining popularity as a political philosophy in that country and that Russia was sponsoring that activity. And so we decided to start fucking with them and we began funneling weapons to religious extremists who eventually formed into the Taliban, Mm. who are the people that we're now like shaking our heads going, oh, my God. (sighs) Yeah. Those of you that need a primer on this, check out Rambo 3, the best agitprop piece on the topic. And I would say if you, if you want like a serious overview, a very detailed, serious overview of the entire history of American militarism in Afghanistan and Central Asia more generally, the book Ghost Wars is a really excellent source. I have been actually rereading it, kind of refresh myself on some of the history and the facts. It is very long. So buckle up if you prefer audiobooks. The audiobook is uh, 30 hours plus. So it's oh a long gosh. one. It's a long one, but it covers a lot of territory. And um Um, If you're not screaming and throwing shit by like chapter two, then check your pulse. And then when you are, check out Rambo 3. It starts with a stick fight. So definitely it started back in the 70s, but that when we officially declared war in 2001-ish, I remember I was I was a young kid, but I went to an anti-war protest in, in D.C. on the mall, climbed a tree, and you could literally not see the end of the people. So that, always, that showed me yeah. that this consent for the war that got manufactured really was manufactured, because I remember there was a whole lot of people standing with me saying, no, thank you. Yeah. Well, and I was one of those people for whom consent was manufactured. I mean, I'm a bit older. Um, my dad is a Vietnam vet, and he was not one of the vets who was drafted. He's one of the people who's volunteered and signed up to go to Vietnam because he believed in the cause. And I was raised in a conservative family. He was lifelong army officer. And I never was as conservative as he is. But I certainly, I've talked a little bit on this show before about how I've made the journey from being a fairly conservative kind of oriented person to a very much a screaming leftist and working in war zones will do that for you. So that is uh, definitely a key part of, of my journey. I wish that I could have gotten there another way. Um, but you know, it was that was part of my journey. So well, it has, as we've taught, pushes you to the extremes, regardless whichever extreme you may find yourself on the end, other end. And actually, Corey, um, yeah. I think you should take more credit for which way you became radicalized by being in a war zone. You know, that that doesn't happen to everybody. Not everybody has the empathetic reaction you had. And not just that, but um, I was raised by radical leftists and I became a radical leftist when I grew up and I don't know that if I grew up in a conservative family I would have had the strength and creativity and everything else to really buck my upbringing you know so I always I always want to bring the respect to people that came to the left from farther away than I did here here yeah I remember when I was eight years old somebody told me that um somebody was explaining to me how the CIA had killed Bob Marley (laughs) Wow. Well, you know, the interesting thing about it is, and this is not something that I often talk about publicly. So this is really a first for me to be able to discuss it in this forum. I don't talk about being a contractor, a defense contractor and working in war zones because people have a lot of feelings about it. Veterans who served have certain feelings that are valid and understandable. They see that contractors are paid more than they get paid and they feel frustrated by that. And I understand that feeling. I, for the record, was not one of the people making 
making $250,000 a year. It's just there. Most of us were not. I can talk some other time. I could talk in a lot more detail about how that work structure functions, but it's not a picnic, folks. And essentially the jobs that contractors are doing in war zones, which I worked in both Iraq and Afghanistan. So I spent almost 10 years working in war zones. The jobs that that contractors are doing are jobs that used to be done by troops when we did not have a volunteer army. So if we had gone to war and we still had a draft, then every job that was being done there by a contractor would have been someone who got drafted into service. So that's just, just understand that, first of all. And second, understand too that a lot of the folks, almost all of the folks that are working over there as contractors are not armed. They're working like logistics and support kind of roles. That's the kind of work that I was doing. A lot of them are people who are employed from other countries. They bring in, stop me when this sounds familiar, capitalism, but they bring in a prime contractor that kind of manages everything and then they subcontract out and they hire really cheap labor from places like India and Sri Lanka and Pakistan and the Philippines and they work those folks to the bone and they pay them absolute dog shit. One of the responsibilities I had at one point was overseeing the way that the subcontractor workforce was treated to inspect their living conditions and to ensure that they were meeting the contract and that they were up to code and surprised they weren't. People were not being paid. People were being held against their will in some cases and we had to fight that as workers. Yeah, y'all, I could spend hours unpacking this and we're going to, I promise we are going to talk about Star Trek. Um, but. but but no, let's, uh, let's pause there for a second, because I think that a lot of people on the left, um, including me, have this impression that the military turns the money spout on and everybody yeah. dances in the shower. Yeah. And that, that ain't what you're saying. No, right. No, that is not. There are definitely certain positions that are paid, you know, more money. We work when we're when we're in the war zone, we work seven days a week. Our work shift is twelve hours. Often we work overtime. So we would work I had many, many days where I was working sixteen hours a day, fourteen hours a day. Literally all you do is work and sleep. That's it. And you know, dodge bombs and rockets. I mean, you here, here's a fun fact that a lot of people don't know. <laughs> rockets kill contractors too. And uh, they're actually are more contractors have died in Afghanistan than troops. A lot of people don't know that. That's fucking grim. There is more to war in logistics than in the fighting in many ways. I mean, that is a relatively yes. modern construct, but like, yeah, bringing all the food and the bullets, driving that all around. That's most uh-huh. of the activity. Uh, I, think, I think Caesar knew that logistics were the most important part of war too, you know? Yeah. Every time somebody on Twitter starts popping off about how they're going to do an armed revolution in the Imperial Corps, I'm just like, have you figured out how to feed people yet? Right. And they never, you know, it's like people forget or don't think about it or they buy into this like really, you know, romanticized vision of what a war is. And it's like, no, you still have to keep the trains running. Yeah. If any city is 72 hours from starvation if you close it up. Yeah. Yeah. It's real yeah. easy, real, real, real easy to forget how far away the food actually is from where you are nowadays. But yeah. we don't like we need this infrastructure at this point because it's the only way we mm-hmm. have to distribute it. Yeah. That's why there's fig trees in my yard. So one thing that this brings to mind is, it is the role of the contractor, and I, it seems that it is, and I feel like that basically to cut conscription out of the process makes the experience no longer universal, right? My kid is not going, as it were, right, in terms of like mm-hmm. what, where, how resistance works in powerful circles. And so then just sort of outsourcing this to a corporation that has high paid mercenaries and also a bunch of people that drive trucks, then, okay, now yep. you aren't seeing that. Is Are you on, you're under an NDA and you're not unionized, I'm assuming it's 
it's like illegal to unionize uh, you, no. I assume. <laughs> it's definitely not unionized. <laughs> sure. And like, I'm sure that's a heavy NDA. Whereas if you come back from a war, you would write a book and say, holy shit, that was awful. I was there the whole time. We blew up a bunch of guys. And that would be your right because they made you go. And right. this is a, I think this changes the relationship and is part of the changing the relationship of the public to the war because Iraq one taught us you don't have to suffer for a war to happen. Well, it's really interesting. Actually, I need to comment on that because there it's it's really interesting that you raised that point specifically and I'm I'm looking it up right now, but there's a research paper that was published by two professors from Georgetown like almost 10 years ago. It was like right around the time that we were actually pulling out of Iraq and uh, I'm trying to find it now cuz I shared it with somebody recently. And it actually gets into exactly what you're talking about about how the role of contractors, how it impacts what they call the the public's casualty sensitivity index. Yes. And how because Jesus. basically you have this shadow army that is invisible that is never reported in any form of media. It's never discussed. People get angry even when you bring up contractors because how dare you? Because you know, and I am not here. I want to go on the record right now. I am not here to equate my experience with the troops. And much more importantly, I am also not here to equate my experience with the people of these countries that we invade whose lives are completely turned inside out. It is not the same. I am not equating those two things. But the experience is, is still here nonetheless. Uh, just to just to kind of finish my thought that this research that was done like really like did a contrast and there's, there's not even good record keeping on how many actual contractors died because there's no consistent standard there's no government agency whose responsibility it is to keep track of um, how many contractors die in the battlefield. And we're all supposed to be covered under a, a version of workmen's comp called the Defense Base Act. Let me tell you how well that works. It doesn't. So you got people that are coming home with some of them, the ones that are that do come home that may have been injured. They've got life altering injuries. They've some many of them have PTSD. There is no support for them. It's just, you know, oh, you're a contractor. You know, your contract's over. Fuck you very much. Goodbye. You're done. That's no it. VA even. No, nothing. I mean, it's nothing. not like the VA is great, but like at least it's so something. So this is this is one of this is the thing that um kind of pegs my needle as being a kind of having that working class perspective on this is that one of the conflicts I get into talking to veterans is they will often say, well, we need to take care of all the homeless veterans before we can take care of anybody else, and it's like, well, homie, combat veterans are actually the only members of the working class that can afford to buy a home anymore, you know. So it's yeah. like you are getting something, you know, <laughs> and yeah. um, it's not exactly what you want, but you are like we have made veterans a special economic class in our society yeah. even if it's not perfect and it's like wow yeah. you guys did all the work for that and you don't even get to be like we can argue about the equitability of having a special economic class for soldiers ancient rome followed the empire but you guys contractors aren't even getting that that ain't cool and the thing is, yeah. is, like, I'm like, I've kind of focused a little bit on American contractors, but the vast majority of the contractors who were actually employed were these third country nationals, people from countries that like literally get absolutely nothing. They're not paid hardly anything to start with. They're worked these horrible, horrible hours. They are forced to live in these terrible conditions because the prime contractor will squeeze every penny of money that they possibly can out of the process. And then they die. And it's just that's it. Like, 
you know, maybe their family gets the body back and that's pretty much where it ends. Like, that's just it. And, and nobody's counting, nobody's keeping track of those injuries. Nobody's keeping track of those casualties and not an essential database. There's no way to calculate the total. Just like there's no way for us to know the total number of civilians that have died. I, I know that the numbers that are officially reported are wildly underestimated. And there's a lot of reasons to stipulate why those civilian casualties are wildly underestimated and underreported. But it's the same situation. Like these folks that come in from other countries that are just like everybody else that took the job is just trying to, you know, find work and take care of their family and took a risk. And once they're, once something happens, it's just, oh, well, I was a contractor. Doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, this is a more intense degree of a very common practice we see, you know, in the United States in the modern era and sort of just within the architecture of imperialism and fascism, right? People who work in prisons work in prisons because it's the only place for like 25 miles in any direction where you can actually get like benefits, right? Mm -hmm. Where like you can get health insurance. And, you know, it's it's very, very easy from... You you know, your Brooklyn apartment or whatever to say, well, I would never do that. Right. But people got kids, you know, mm -hmm. people have illnesses. People have family they take care of, friends they take care of. People want to have the basic security of knowing they're still going to have a paycheck the next week, you know? Yeah. And that is the lure. And it's yeah. a very intentional thing. You know, we, we put all of our ugliest, bloodiest, most despicable institutions in somebody else's backyard. And that's yeah. on purpose. That is exactly how everyone gets into contracting. I mean, there, there are people who sign up because they, you know, they, they believed in the cause and they wanted to do their part and support the troops. And you tell yourself, people tell themselves that, but nobody stays for that reason. Everybody goes because they need the money. And if they stay, it's because they still need the money. There was um, an article about someone that was a, a truck driver in Iraq uh, who was employed by the same company that I worked with there. And uh, he he was injured. Uh, he, he, the reason he took the job in the first place is because he had um, had a lot of medical debt from some previous things and he couldn't get himself ahead financially. And so he was offered this job to go to Iraq and drive a truck. And, you know, he was full of patriotic fervor, like, you know, hey, cool, I get to like pay off my medical debt and I get to, you know, do something to support the troops, which is the, the paradigm that we're sold. And so he gets there and he ends up getting very badly injured in a major incident and has life-altering injuries and PTSD as a result of it, is not able to return to work. And so he comes home. I mean, he managed to get like a little bit of financial security in the interim, but then he eventually comes home and he burns through all of that and he has nothing left to support him. And he's dealing with the consequences of having been literally like blown up by an IED, except doesn't have any of the, the right. social support or the institutional support that as broken and as insufficient as it may be, at least does exist for people who served in uniform. Yeah, if you think the VA is terrible, just try to get along without it. I mean, yeah, right? Like, the only thing worse than the VA is not having it. Which is the boat that the rest of us are in, you know? And yeah. I mean, and when yeah. I say the rest of us, I mean, like the rest of America that doesn't have universal health care. Yeah. Yeah, I was an educator for five years. Doesn't that count being in a war zone long enough for me to go to the VA? I mean, right? Certainly, it's public service. <laughs> I considered putting myself between my students and a gunman more than once. Exactly. Never had to, but I considered it. I am an honored veteran from the posting wars, and I would like the VA too. <laughs> 
I'm just some guy, and I would also like to not die needlessly from stuff. But I promised right. we were going to talk about Star Trek, so... Honestly, I'm going to interrupt you just to say, if we talk about Star Trek exactly zero in this episode, I still think that's a good episode, because this is something people should just hear about. Like, yeah. if we don't get to a lot of Star Trek in this one, fans, I love you, deal with it. I think well, that's fine. Let's roll through a little bit more of this, right? Because there's a little more of, like, the background, like, so the authorization of the use of military force, which is ultimately yeah, right. just a blank check that was written, again, within a month of the building. The buildings were put, the fires were put out at WTC 1 and 2 on uh, December. Yeah. We were already ready to go, guns blazing within blank check that was also not budgeted. That, that was a terrible way to say budgeted. Anyway, there was no, it was not on the books. They just rang up trillions of dollars a year for... Oh, wow. 20 whole years. My whole adult life. Right. The AMF was actually authored less than a week after 9-11. I'm going to let you know that that is probably not the first draft. I figured they had to have had something like it in their pocket, you know? Like, I figured the only way they could have cranked something like that out that quickly is if they had already had it ready to go for the most part and just needed to, like, swap in some names and shit. Dear consultancy, what would you write if you wanted to just do like a bunch of violence forever? And they're like, oh, we have something for that. It's like four lines. You guys are going to, it's very, very quick and dirty. One exactly. sheet, boom. Exactly. And if you go back and, and rewatch, and I encourage everyone to do this, go to go to YouTube and, and look up Barbara Lee's uh, speech as to why she was not voting for the measure. She was the lone vote against it, as, as a lot of people know. But just go back and like really sit with that timeline for a minute. And you're right, like the language did already exist. There's any kind of legislation that is in the works. There's always somebody working on a draft of it somewhere and you just need to polish it up and patch some holes and throw a name on it. graduate thesis paper and they're like, well, right. You want to do a fascism. Uh, not that I think that that's okay, but here's exactly what you do. And, and also, like, these kinds of measures had been passed in Congress before, but never as broad as this one. And that was the key. Yeah, they named, like, places and enemies and flags right. and guys and, yeah, any limitation. And even though it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be limited to the people who were responsible for the attacks on 9-11, it was written in such a way that was broadly enough that anybody could be interpreted as having some a level of association. And we have invaded and attacked militarily at least, at least that we know of, 19 countries under that AUMF in the last 20 years. At least. And this is why, as a legal professional, I just want to say, define your fucking terms, people. Don't leave it up for grabs, right? You, you mean a thing? You say a thing. You mean some right. pick a person. I don't know. Just try it. Yeah. Well, I have a little bit of a segue for us. Go for um, it. Didn't DS9 try to warn us about writing blank sort of permissions for the military to go hunt people that could look just like you and talk just like you, but had a different ideology? Like, couldn't the scare with the changelings infiltrating the Federation be kind of like yeah. a, a metaphor oh, for, um, for the, the war on terror? Like, we're, we're fighting terror. Oh, very much. I would consider it as much a metaphor as Enterprise 226, The Expanse. You know, the one where the Zindi do 9-11 from Florida to Venezuela. 
Right. But yeah, I mean, but like, because that is like in moment, that is like, ooh, so they're trying so hard to be such relevant sci-fi. But you're right. No, the uh, like, what do you do about an enemy that could be anyone? Do we do in fucking blood checks every minute of the day or like what? Well, and that episode in particular that you bring up, which is a really, really good point to raise, Amy, thank you, has one of probably the most pointed examples of manufactured consent in all of Trek history. And that was when they sabotaged their own power grid to make people think that the Tanglings had done it so that they would ramp up the war. Now, I feel like even some leftists are not are not entirely unskeptical of the phrase manufactured consent. I feel like some people still think this is um, something that only fascists only, you know, like the Nazis did or something like that. Only real (laughs) bad people do, you know. So tell me all about that, Corey. Yeah, manufactured consent. See also all of cable news coverage of the current situation in Afghanistan right now. I mean, it's immediately like we're the the planes are still taking off from the airport in Kabul, crammed full of diplomats and refugees, and we're already getting fresh articles about over a trillion dollars in minerals in Afghanistan that we that the world needs. Like that's manufactured consent. That's that is you're you're portraying a picture of there's a rich resource that has fallen into the hands of a terrible enemy and they're bad people because they're bad to women and they're um, and they're going to go after the interpreters who worked with our troops which I got something to say about that in a second too but you know they're you're you're propping up this the Taliban are not good people they're not people with whom I am ideologically aligned or support in any way like I am not down with what they're doing at the same time like we don't don't need to go invade again and rip up a trillion dollars worth of resources that that country happens to be sitting on because it's not our country. It is their country. It belongs to the Afghan people. That's just that's what's happening right now is they're already starting to manufacture consent for the next uh, the next invasion. The point that I wanted to make about the interpreters is this: immediately when things started to unravel in Afghanistan in general, um, just over the course of the last ten days, and especially when they when they closed in on Kabul, basically everybody uh, who was making any kind of commentary in any space with very few exceptions was talking about the need for us to evacuate our interpreters who worked with the troops and to evacuate women and children and and that's because those were going to be the people that were going to be prime targets for the Taliban to to go after them which is not untrue however first of all there were many other people besides only the interpreters who worked with the Americans uh, worked on the base we had uh, on the base that I worked on or one of the bases I worked on we had several thousand I think up to 5,000 at one point Afghan locals who performed all kinds of jobs they were cooks they were dishwashers they cleaned porta potties, they emptied dumpsters, they drove trucks, they did all kinds of tasks. Some of them were electricians, some of them were carpenters, warehousemen, like all kinds of jobs that were done. They were paid $5 a day. A lot of them were illiterate. Are you fucking serious? I mean, I knew about literacy in Afghanistan being a thing. Literacy is very low there. Probably because, you know, they've been fucking devastated by war for the last 20 years, if I had to guess. Oh, 40 years, 40 years, actually. Yeah. So yeah, that has a lot to yeah, do with fair, it. Actually. 40. Yeah, I'm only thinking yeah. about our war in there are devastating them. But no, it goes further back than that. You're right. Yeah. And I'm actually having a, a moment where I'm realizing just how freaking naive I am. Because like, this sounds exactly like the stories my uncle tells about Vietnam. You know, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought it would have just been like at least a little different, like, you know, a little different. 
I got to tell you, I got to tell you a really interesting thing. So, uh, like a little over a year ago, I binge watched MASH on Hulu, which I grew up watching MASH. I fucking love MASH. MASH is hilarious. It's also really poignant. Hot lips. Yeah. MASH is amazing. Everybody should go watch MASH. However, watching it when I was growing up was one thing. As an army brat, as a kid, child of a Vietnam veteran was one thing. Watching it after having lived in a tent in Iraq and Afghanistan was a really different experience. And I was just constantly having to stop the show and just take a breath and like, holy shit, it's really no different. I mean, like, yeah, we got like better food in the dining facility. And yeah, we got like more reliable mail service. And, you know, we can have like internet and computers. And those are those are all good things, like some new technology that made the experience of it. But by and large, the experience that you see in MASH is pretty much what happens and, and including like the interactions with the local citizens pretty much exactly how it was in Iraq and Afghanistan for me as a person who also lived in a tent with 40 other women. So that's fun. <laughs> that does not sound yeah. fun in the slightest, Corey, and you know it. So if there was a character on your base that was going to be called Spear Chucker, what would they actually be called? Oh, my God. Uh, the, nope, uh, nope, 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 nope. No, there were there were definitely there were definitely words for um for locals in particular that were popular among um both the troops and the contractors and I will not repeat them because they're not okay. You know, that's all I need to know. That's all I need to know. Yeah. So uh, anyway, but my point being is like there were there were hundreds of thousands uh, there were tens of thousands if not hundreds i don't know the exact figure but there were a lot of them many 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 more who were working these kinds of menial jobs making five dollars a day and they worked on that base for 10 15 some of them worked there all 20 years that we were there and those people are not eligible for the special immigrant visa program that was created especially to evacuate the interpreters who actually actively went around on patrols with those with our troops but i also want to say that i want to go on record right now and say that we should not be restricting our compassion and our desire to help those who want to seek asylum in the United States from Afghanistan to people who directly served the army of occupiers. Okay, just because somebody served the occupying army does not mean that they uh, should have the sole consideration or even the I don't even think the primary consideration because plenty of people suffered under our occupation suffered under our control of their country our, our devastation and our destabilization of their country and those people their lives are every bit as valid and every bit as worthy of being able to pursue their dreams and realize their full potential and we owe them we owe all of them yeah but what if they come here with their with their arabic and they speak arabic here and what if white people then have to contend with yet another example of their own impermanence and you know that they are not actually the only species of human that exists like what will we do then Okay, but they yeah, got those that would comforters. Be terrible. Your grandma loves so much. <laughs> you might have to change your perspective on a thing or two. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we should we should be so lucky to have a massive influx of Afghan culture because it is a rich and diverse culture with amazing food and wonderful music and beautiful art. And we should be so lucky that we should be able to benefit from that and to give them space to be able to preserve their culture when we have certainly done everything we can to erase it in their homeland. Yeah, And frankly, maybe we should accept like people that aren't snitches, too. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a pretty solidly open borders podcast, and yes. certainly, I I want to co-sign on. I hope the uh, behalf of the organization, everything Corey just said, because holy shit, yep, nailed it. Thank you. 
countries don't matter when you're comparing to all of space, you know, right. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's the, yeah, yeah. you know, tiny blue dot thing, right? Pale blue dot. You remember that episode of Deep Space Nine? It was really early on, and I don't remember the name of the alien species, but it was one of the first ones that came through the wormhole, and they were essentially looking to resettle their entire species, and they wanted to settle on Bajor. They were there was the, the one that the Universal Translator didn't work at first, and so Kira ended up befriending them, and then they wanted to resettle on Bajor, and it turned into this big controversy because the people on Bajor were like, "Listen, like we're still recovering from a terrible occupation ourselves, like we can't support you," and the the argument they were making was listen like we're farmers we can we can actually help Bajor and you can help us like we can help each other we can restore your land together and we can build something you know beautiful and they just said yeah you know sorry listen I get it Bajor had just been through a, a very long occupation stop me when this sounds familiar <laughs> and didn't necessarily feel that they were in a, a space to be able to uh, accommodate that kind of request but it just really goes to show if we recognize our common humanity and embrace these opportunities to integrate and develop into something new together, like what we could gain if we embraced that mindset. Please let me know if your society is in a good mental place to absorb my entire <laughs> civilization. I understand <laughs> it's been a big week. Yeah. Actually, I've, I've, got, I've got a problem with the numbers in that episode. As I recall, it's like 6 million refugees is what they're trying to take So off. like Atlanta. So they wanted us to bring uh -huh. Atlanta. Yeah. Like one city. No, fuck one you. city fuck full you, of Bajor. people that are expert farmers. That's what they were trying to absorb. That would have actually been like the perfect juice to their, their workforce. If they really wanted that to be like an overwhelming thing that you wanted the audience to agree with Bajor about, that you wanted to see them to see Bajor's point, they needed to multiply that by like a hundred, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I have 700 billion guys on the other side of the wormhole waiting to come through. Right. Yeah, there was billions, like, like, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm assuming, like, Star Trek has figured out how to have 10 billion people on a planet, no problem. But if you're talking about another 6 billion, then I could see Bajor squeaking. But you're just talking about yeah. 6 million under, like, low-skilled farmers? Like, come on, that's that's a perfect migrant labor force. Right, I'm gonna say, we should be so <laughs> fucking lucky, right? Seriously, seriously. And, you know, it's we're in the same situation now with the, with Afghan asylum seekers, as you, you mm -hmm. again, it's a very rich and diverse culture. We have a labor shortage. I don't know if you guys noticed, but we just had 600,000 people die. So, yeah. you know, bit of a labor shortage. We're up to 900 now. Oh, yeah. Well, that's true with the estimates. I actually think it's higher than that. But, it, you know. It's, and a lot you... of them are line cooks. Yeah. I mean, we're already starting to see, like, supply chain breakdowns in the United States. Like, it's getting yeah. bad. It's getting real bad. Yeah. Yeah. Real fast. And I don't think people realize. Yeah, find your favorite flavor of Gatorade. Try and find it right now. I bet only one or two stores out of... Just go oh, to the store, yeah. see if it's there. I didn't have Dr. Peppers for a week in my gas station back here. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Where, who will fill our bellies with prune-flavored sodas? I don't sodas? know. I'm a Carolina girl. I can't even get RC Cola here. Did you say prune-flavored soda? Uh, yeah, I don't know if you know what Dr. Pepper and Mr. Piv are, but yuck. Are they really supposed to be prune-flavored? They surely are. Let's stop for one second. I want to... I want to say warrior soft drink. I want to wrap the... Uh, it's, just, it's the cola of a warrior. It's true. So I want to wrap the sort of real-world discussion before we dive straight into more track and sort of unpacking some of that with the conclusion yeah. to our yeah. little adventure here of my, again, my entire adult life and constant cycles of in and out and whether we're going to stay or go or when it's the right time. It's always six months from now. That's always the right time to go. It was the right time to go. We started six 
months before we went, it was the right time to not go. And it's been the right time to have gone the whole time. They want us to stick. Anyway, my real weirdness here is they knew this was coming, right? Like, I mean, Donald Trump signed a ceasefire yeah. with the Taliban that expired in 18 yep. months. This was not like a, oh, golly, oh, what just happened? Like, you knew, like, the whole time, every, the military and CIA and everybody involved in Biden knew this was coming. Or did they just not tell him? Like, that seems bizarre and wrong. But no, they, and like, but, he knew. And like, it's giving me, like, big, um, uh, what is it, Jimmy Carter hostage crisis energy. Like, when you're, like, running against a guy who's the head of the CIA and then a massive international incident happens that totally blows your image. And then the, uh, the guy who's right. head of the CIA who's running for vice president then becomes president. And it's like, wow, or, yeah, wins because of your failing to achieve in this international thing. Golly, is this, is this sounding at all familiar? Well, uh, yeah, I got something to say about this. I'm going to probably for the first and last time, I'm going to say these words. I need to give Joe Biden a little bit of credit here. <laughs> wow. Again, first and probably last time. Big talk here at Gay Space Communism. Yeah, yeah. This is, uh, I'm going to give him a little bit of credit because yes, he did know that this deal was coming. Um, he came in knowing what the deadline was. The deadline was actually supposed to be May and he did decide to stick by the withdrawal plan. He did have it extended a bit just to give more time to get some things out, gets people out. It took time to wind that stuff down. I had friends that were still working, like contractor friends who were still working on the base up until July that were like literally, it, it takes time to wind all that shit down. Oh yeah, no, shut this entire operation down in eight. 18 months is a, a big order no matter what operation it is really yeah yeah exactly exactly and so you know he I, i'm gonna give him credit for sticking with the plan to withdraw when the easy decision would have been to uh to continue to find reasons to extend it because when you say didn't they know yes they knew they knew exactly that this outcome that we are experiencing right now is exactly what was going to happen. They have known it for years. A lot of people didn't even read the Washington Post reporting the Afghanistan papers that came out in December 2019 because, you know, understandably, like the headline was big, shocking, breaking news, everybody. They've been lying to us about Afghanistan and it's we all went, real yeah, fucking we bad. know, but we didn't really dig into it. And then immediately what happened after that was the pandemic broke and then it was like Afghanistan papers, what? But really, if I encourage you to go back and reread that just to understand like the extent to which all of our military commanders, everyone in the Obama administration, everyone in the Trump administration, everyone in the incoming Biden administration, all of the key members of Congress who are responsible for oversight of these things, all of them knew that the exact way that things played out was what was going to happen. They knew that the Taliban was gaining strength. They knew that we were not holding them at bay, that it was all an illusion. They knew that they were juking the stats. They knew it. They knew it. They were intentionally covering that fact up. It was always going to be a shit show when we withdrew but i will give joe biden credit on this leaving was still the right decision there was never going to be a time where it was going to be less painful than it is right now here here it's a war game scenario the only winning move was of course not to play but here we are jamming quarters into the fucking yes. kick me in the dick machine oh i'm <laughs> so, i mean i don't know it's it's a whole thing i cory's making me angrier than i normally am <laughs> no, i mean it's just the <laughs> Kick me in the dick machine. Yeah. <laughs> Kick me in the dick machine needs to be the title of the episode. So be it. <laughs> Absolutely. Listen, Paul, I know you're funny. Like, Paul, I've known you're funny for years now, but occasionally you still say things that surprise me. Kick me in the dick machine is a. <laughs> Are you a bad one. enough I'd dude like, to get kicked in the and dick? I broadly agree times. with it as an apt metaphor for what oh, we're doing. Well, let's try and talk about our favorite space program. Um, So, like, they think I got kind of a nice, a little built out a little outline, but uh, we've talked about some 
some of this stuff, but I would like to kick around some of the ideas here. Because I think that now we have unpacked really well how angry the Afghanistan war should make everyone. And you can go learn about that on like a history podcast where they know things. Although, Corey, you're like obviously not to underplay your massive expertise and contributions to this because shit, I just decided it would be a bad idea to go. That being said, let's, uh, okay, so like, let's talk about the solution Star Trek has for war. And I think actually one of the ones I love and want to bring up the right now because it's the thing we're doing is best of both worlds, all right? Wolf 359, as you rightly, Corey, pointed out, was an inside job. But again, we can, but let's let that part go for a second. <laughs> Putting Picard back in charge of the Federation's flagship after he was the orchestrator and murderer of millions at Wolf 359 is kind of like asking David from whose fault this is. Yes or no? And like, <laughs> is that kind of a, I mean, like, this is clearly a thing that keeps happening. Like, oh, well, they know the most about it, even though they did the worst possible thing. It's like, okay, no. And like, I think there are, so Star Trek does actually sometimes do a decent job of like, hey, dude, no, Picard, you can't go to the Borg fight. You have to stay here and go back in time and invent warp drive. But like, they do keep him out of the battle with the Borg in uh, first contact for that reason. And I think that's a smart play of like, oh, you no, you have a bad history with this. You don't get to tell us about wars in the Middle East anymore. Donald Rumsfeld, for example. I mean, yeah. And yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, Henry Kissinger. wow, right? I mean, if you have not watched <laughs> The Venture Brothers, by the way, go check that out because the representation of Dr. Henry Killinger is amazing. He truly is a super villain. Yeah, you can trace the moment irony died to when Kissinger won the peace. Yeah, prize. see, we're really bad at this. And like, at least in Starfleet, there's some <laughs> accountability for, hey, you did such a bad job. A lot of people were killed. That's bad. Like, you don't get to be in charge of at least this particular thing anymore. Even acknowledging it was not you. It was still you, wasn't it, bud? I don't know. I think Picard <laughs> unpacks a little of that well, reasonably well, too, of like, how do you come back from that well? And I think that, yeah, better than worse, but certainly not by being on the news telling me we needed to do it again. Well, and, and they really glossed over in next generation like his recovery from that experience like he clearly had massive post-traumatic stress from it but it was just like you know go visit your brother and cry in the vineyard and then you're fine also <laughs> like, you have a vineyard never mind just... <laughs> right as opposed to the reality of PTSD, which is, of course, it haunts you for literally the rest of your life. You just get better at swallowing the terror that suddenly and unexpectedly rises up in you for completely unrelated reasons later down the road. Yes. Wait, are you trying yeah. to say that, exactly. that, that trauma actually produces brain damage? What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, actually, I'm not going to be facetious about that. Hey, audience, audience, we're, we're being facetious, but let me just say this, like, trauma causes brain damage. Yes. It doesn't make you stronger. If you've listened this far and, and you, you don't think this, think this now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, strongly agree. All of the scientific knowledge we have shows that trauma physically injures your brain and it can only recover so much. And it's it's bad. It's bad to flood your brain with cortisol all of the time, you know, and when you have successive traumas, you know, you get better at coping with them. But you're also going to be coping with like mood disorder or anxiety disorder or, you know, depending on whether you pulled an unlucky number, a psychotic disorder, you know, something that can be triggered by stress, all of these. And once they start, they don't stop, right? Every time you have an episode like this, it wears the grooves deeper in your brain. So once you've had a certain number of, you know, depressive episodes, you're never going to stop having them. Once you've had yeah. a certain number of anxiety episodes, you're never going to stop having them because our brains develop around you 
use. And the things we use the most in our brain, the structures we use the most in our brain become the most tended and the other ones die off. That's fucking dark, right? But like, I mean, this is why intergenerational trauma matters because we are traumatizing people so much in wars that they leave and they traumatize everyone around them. We are, we are making monsters. And we're making monsters and we're shoving them right back into our society. We're putting them right back in with their families and saying, good luck, buddy. Not to mention the trauma we're causing to other folks. And that's that's why it's so important to really understand like the depth of our involvement in the current state of affairs in Afghanistan. It is quite literally our fault. We are the principal authors of the fate of the Afghan people right now because we have been consciously, deliberately, and consistently interfering and interjecting ourselves militarily in their society for at least 42 years, at least. That is intergenerational trauma that is so far compounded. There are so many people there who have never known anything but war. And like we're surprised that there is continued animosity or that they're sick of us and they want us to go, but they also need our help. Like it's like it's it's just like we we have to really come to terms with how much we have broken these people and not just the Afghan people, people all over the world. Like that is American imperialism. Yeah, I mean, that's our legacy. Okay, well, let's try and get a little lighter, right? Like, so TOS has kind of a solution. They give us a taste of Armageddon, uh, which is there. So they beam down to a place that's mostly plastic and ladies with drapey, silvery stuff. But the entire culture is at war. There are two massive civilizations that are at war. And ultimately, they do the war in a computer simulation. And then they assign the sectors that were destroyed. The people that lived in that place go to a suicide booth and then die voluntarily. This is like a like so like this is is exactly mm-hmm. how you one of the dipshittest ways, the least creative ways to get out from under the problem of you are creating intergenerational trauma by forcing people to go to war and suffer the deprivations of war and have it happen around them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, that's fine. You just go to a fun little booth when the, when the McKinsey Corp says that you gotta go stand over there. <laughs> the wars will be fought by tiny robots <laughs> in the spot in the sky. So on top of tall mountains. It's a yeah, the Simpsons thing. But like right, this is a and I like that they're, I mean, Kirk's yeah. solution to this is, uh, no, I'm going to turn your robots off. You guys got to kill each other or figure it out or don't, but you got to get in there and do it, yeah. you know, with your <laughs> hands, which I think speaks to like the, the problems of right. drones that we yeah. experience. I mean, the contract, like what, as I brought up earlier, the way contractors distance us from that harm and sort of make it invisible. This is that great. Your society just mm-hmm. has big suicide booths. Sometimes they call your number and you're like, shit, bingo. And you got to go stand in the thing. Uh, and it's a very, yep. yeah. yeah. But, you know, I think it does such a good job of encapsulating the Mm -hmm. absurdity of it, you know? Like, when you Mm -hmm. take all of the romance out of war, all you're left with is a bunch of people dying. Mm -hmm. And if literally making it a bloodless thing is what it takes to get people to realize how fucking stupid and pointless war is. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, know what's so interesting about that particular episode? And I've forgotten about that one, so thanks for bringing it up. But, like... One of my favorites, actually. Yeah, I remember one of the arguments that they made about like why this system was a good thing and why it was better than doing actual war where they blew up 
buildings and stuff. As they said, well, you know, if we did more the traditional way, then we would lose our culture because we would be blowing up our, our homes and our places of work and our, our art and our history. And like, that's like predicated on the belief that your culture is, you know, the buildings that you live in and, you know, the physical things in your life and not the people. And that is, it, it, is, it is the people. It is it is the, the relationships that we have with one another and the stories that we carry inside of ourselves and, and pass along and the the values that we instill in one another that is what your culture is so yeah no you were wrong you were not saving your culture by saving the buildings and killing the people it was literally the opposite yeah 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 like the architect is the culture the building is the result of the culture. the artifact of the culture even to use the i believe the technical terms right. here yeah exactly. um but not that technical but yeah again star trek's always done an interesting job i think earlier on they were a little more it was the middle of vietnam and i think the ability of creators to push back directly on that kind of narrative was a lot stronger even if just in metaphor but the idea like all oh, war is dumb doesn't matter if no one suffers cool get that idea out at least at all right. because at this point i mean at this point now you have to have an open bad guy you have to have someone like no one of the sides in the war is good and i mean i guess this brings us to the vulcan hello which is uh uh, for those of you who are not Discovery fans, and I think this <laughs> this flows in nicely though, but the Vulcan response to the Klingons, how the way that Vulcans established diplomatic contact with the Klingon Empire was that it became their stated policy after enough encounters to open fire immediately on the Klingons every time you saw them. At which point the Klingons baby. began attempting diplomatic relations. So war, what is it good for? Something? Yeah, uh, that is um, that is just not how the world works. And we see that in Afghanistan right now. So the application of military force, though, I resist saying it's good for nothing simply because Carthage no longer exists. If you want to exterminate a people, war is a pretty efficient tool for that. Solid point for um, war. Chalk that one up. Want to do, so it does do something. You know, it does do something. It just does a terrible thing. Well, I had not considered that, and I'm now a war centrist. There's a really incredible book called The Age of Empathy by Franz DeWall. He's an ethologist who uh, works studying chimpanzees at Yerkes, which is actually like an offshoot of Emory, which is an Atlanta college. And the entire premise of the book, right, is like, is empathy a natural thing? Like, is, is empathy intrinsic to the human condition? And one of the sort of points that it makes is like, it's both, right? We are both empathetic and warlike. You know, the trick really is bringing out the empathetic responses instead of shutting down to the warlike ones. And it's it's difficult, right? It's difficult to get people to let go of that fear of being unprepared. Right. And they get really, really lost in just, I don't know if you can call them fantasies, really, or like obsessions or like plaguing, you know, they, they have these sort of... We can call them power fantasies. But, but I don't think it's really even a power fantasy. Like, it is, but it isn't. To right? tie back it's... to our discussion a moment ago, we could call them trauma coping strategies, perhaps, in some. Yeah, for some of these people. And I'm yeah. talking, like, even about, like, sort of people who tend to be very, like, war enthusiastic, right? People who seem like they want to go to war over something. You as know, distinguished I, I think... from people who view it as a necessary evil at times, which we can disagree with, but can be distinguished from, yes, you should go to war. That's good. And which does right. exist. I mean, there are right. people who think exactly. of it. Exactly. Yeah. Like, 
And it exists. It's good for a nation's character to go to war, you know, as, as a lot of people in World War One thought. You know, a lot right. of people were enthusiastic about that sucker. Well, and it's all sort of built on essentializing the other, right? And so bringing it back to talking about Vulcans and Klingons, right? Vulcans are very good at essentializing, to a fault even, right? Like they, they want there to be one most logical answer, and that is the only answer, and everything else is just an emotional reaction. And that's obviously not how any of this works, right? And so they, you know, they essentialize Klingons as they're violent and can't be reasoned with. You know, and it's like, there is no social species that could possibly achieve something like space flight that can't be reasoned with. Yeah. It's, it's impossible to develop that far as a social species and have language and not also be negotiating. The reason we developed language in the first place was as a negotiating strategy. Like, people really put the cart before the horse with that one a lot. I actually think language was developed to tell the other monkeys to eat that specific mushroom. Hell Yeah. <laughs> I want to piggyback on that point for a second because like the contrast that you just drew there between like the Vulcans and the Klingons and how they engage with them it really makes me think about the way that we have portrayed and even like the assumptions that American society at large but especially the pundit class has made about the Taliban in general um, yeah. Afghans broadly Can we just talk about the movie Borat for a second like all of it Sure that shit's yeah. super fucking racist. Sorry to ruin your favorite yeah. bit, yeah. my wife, guys, but that movie's fucking racist. I don't understand how people were able, like, leftists were able to watch that movie when it came out. Yeah, like, I go to my brother's house one day, like, this is back when that shit came out, you know, and he's laughing and laughing and laughing and all his friends are laughing and laughing. I was just disgusted by that from the moment I saw it, and I don't understand why everybody else wasn't. Yeah. Sorry to virtue yeah. signal. To be completely honest, I did like the scene where they were throwing money at cockroaches because they thought they were Jews. But I feel like that's maybe a little bit more about my personal relationship with like over the top anti-Semitism than it is actually about whether Sasha Baron Cohen is funny. Yeah, just going back to this conversation about like you know contrasting Vulcans and Klingons and and the way that we engage with the Taliban. One of the things that has been really deeply personally frustrating to me watching the news this week is the way that at large we have centered the voices only of veterans of the people like veterans and and other like American like lawmakers and even people like me you know who went to Afghanistan to like like let's let's hear about their experiences. We are not. Listening to the people of Afghanistan, and there are plenty of them. I have been consciously seeking out a number. In fact, I'll curate a list and I'll post it, and we can retweet it from the the Gay Space Cast account of, of people that I have followed that are either like Afghan expats or they are, you know, people that are currently um, independent journalists in Afghanistan. And like, we need to be listening to their voices right now. I was reading one gentleman who was writing about having been a former radical and how he had he. Described himself as a, a former Islamist. And he said that a lot of people get into this movement, so to speak, of chasing this religious fundamentalism within Islam because they are trying to recover their identity. They're trying to recover their culture that has been stolen from them by decades and decades and decades of war and colonialism. And that's really the driving force. And he said that that was an important part 
of his personal journey. I'll find that thread too. I, I think I, I'm pretty sure I tweeted it, but I'll, I'll boost it again. He was talking about how that was an important part of his journey was coming to terms with the fact that it wasn't necessarily that he wanted this strict fundamental interpretation of his religious faith, which he is still uh, you know, a practicing Muslim, but that he and so many others were simply trying to recover an identity and a culture that had been taken from them by all of this trauma. And I think the assumptions that we make about the other, that we have to bomb them because that's the only kind of language they understand. Like that is how long have we been hearing exactly that rhetoric? That is, that is the Vulcan hello. We've been doing yeah. Vulcan hellos in every country. How many different times have yeah. any of you listening to this heard some redneck say the phrase glass parking lot? Yeah, or even go back to 9-11 and like the, the late night comedy shows when they were coming back on air and there were very popular and mainstream news God. anchors going on late night with David Letterman saying, well, they're, they attacked us because they hate us. Like, There's yeah. no way that's what anyone decided to do. remember that dude Nobody with the puppets and one of the puppets was super racist? Uh, Dunham? Uh, yeah, was it Jeff Dunham? Jeff Dunham? Yeah, that there was, anyway, that was also happening uh, at that time, right? Like this dude, literally his entire yeah. comedy bit was he just had a fucking racist, a racist caricature puppet. of a Muslim person that yelled about bombs a lot. Yeah. And it's like, this is comedy? Yeah. And I go to the doctor and I say, but doctor, I am Jeff Dunham's mildly racist puppets. <laughs> I don't even yeah. know about mildly, right? Like, I, mean, like I, I think perpetuating that image of Muslim okay. people is really dangerous to Muslim people. Okay, actually racist puppets. I was, yeah, sorry. Yeah, but we have this perception and, and part of the anger that we're seeing expressed right now about the situation in Afghanistan is people are really, really angry that the United States was defeated by this quote unquote ragtag band. How many times have you heard that phrase? Like uh, this this group of what, what are being described as unsophisticated fighters, yeah. like how embarrassing it is that they defeated us and they refer even the phrase like stop using phrase graveyard of empires. Stop saying that. That was a phrase, by the way, that was coined by the British the first time that they invaded and brutalized Afghanistan in the 1800s. So just because they couldn't do right. it, they decided it couldn't possibly be done. Right, right. And and so, you know, like, way to, way to portray the empire as the victim here. Like, you know, you just came in and brutalized this country and, you know, you're the real victim because you couldn't defeat them properly. But we have these assumptions about how the Taliban and how the Mujahideen fighters and the People that were fighting the U.S. occupation in general, whatever their particular affiliation may have been, that they were just these unsophisticated, uneducated people, when in reality, they had very smart tactics. They didn't have the same resources, clearly. But hey, a lot of people didn't know this. Taliban actually did have planes at one point in the 90s when they were controlling Afghanistan. They had an air force. It wasn't a U.S. air force, but it was an air force. You know, they're not just a bunch of folks living in caves and like waving sticks around like these are they're human beings all of them every single person they're all mm -hmm. human beings they're complicated they have the right to want to claim their identity they don't have the right to oppress other people no that's not okay but but also it's not like our responsibility to stop them exactly exactly and it exactly. shouldn't be we should not be deputizing ourselves as like sheriff of the entire fucking planet let people get there on their own terms stop trying to beat people into believing the same things you do 
Well, and to that point, so like a, a development that's just happened today is like you know we we have immediately everybody started crying like oh we we have to we have to get the women and the children out like okay so Afghan men don't deserve to to live and have a future as well of course they do like it's that's it, a little bit patriarchal and, and well, weird and gross. but it's it's exactly it's the same reduction that always happens with bigotry right like this this other is simultaneously extremely incompetent and extremely dangerous exactly it sounds like a neoliberal version of that bible quote you know <laughs> Wait, frankly, live by the sword like when you, when you conquer sword? a people that doesn't believe what you believe you kill all the men and rape all the women right that right. means that like we're just doing that right we're leaving the men to die and absorbing the women and children into our culture Right. But what happened today in Kabul, there was a massive, massive anti-Taliban protest that was led by women and broadly participated in. The streets were overflowing and they were, it was Afghan Independence Day and they were protesting against the Taliban. They had a showdown with the Taliban. Some of the Taliban were like wanting to shoot them and had to be like brought to heel, really. Yeah. So this is like, we're not dealing with the same situation. So just the assumption that oh, automatically it's going to be exactly like it was in the 1990s. Like, no, give people some credit that they're going to get there on their own, in their own way, and that they don't need us to come in there and dictate how their lives are going to go. Mm, thank you. All this puts me in mind of this party I went to a few years back. I dropped a lot of acid and um, you? I was sitting on the porch. And this dude who had just gotten back from Afghanistan sat across from me and drank a case of beer and told me all about it. And Jesus. it was an experience. Um, Did you tell him or were you like, hey, set me up? Like, it's like queuing up fucking uh, Dark Side of the Moon and the movie with the girl. No, what I found actually, it was a it was a crazy experience. What I found was that I couldn't have a bummer anymore. You know, I've had bummers in the past, but I actually can't have a bad trip anymore. It's just sometimes I trip and it's not for me. And this was my first experience of that when I was tripping wow. and it turned out I had taken acid so I could understand someone else, not myself. And wow. I sat him down and we talked about the whole damn thing. And his perspective had been so well managed. You know, there was nothing I could do to change it. I could just hear it. But he literally, like, was trapped in this perspective where he could only see him trying to protect the school that got blown up and not, like, the surrounding problems he was creating, you know? Right. This is a fellow that had been over there twice and was trying to get into special forces, you know, right. and just really wanted to nuke them some bitches, you know? Yeah. Look at what we did yeah. to Japan and how, how they're behaving so nicely now, is how he would put it. Yeah, they're doing great. Oh they God. definitely don't have a crisis going on in there about anything. Yeah. yeah, they've definitely been well-behaved brown people ever since, was his perspective, I think. Now, I want to I want to emphasize that's not my perspective. Well, I mean, it's always, right. it gets back, the, the moral argument is always bogus, right? Like, I yeah. mean, not to echo the actual Taliban, but we let the Saudi Arabia, you know, the place where all those guys that did the thing that we're mad about were actually from. We let them do all of this and we don't give a fuck about women. I'm not, mm -hmm. I mean, like human individually, yeah. no, the but four it's of true, us do, right? but the United States does not give a shit about anyone, but it, like, and it's so, it is transparent yeah. at this point. And the point like, oh, well, we care about women. No, you don't. I mean, you know. Well, it's like when fucking Raytheon did Rainbow for Pride. Hey, no, it's a you know? good time to work on the backside of the missiles. If they're pointed the other way, it's a fantastic place to be. Well, you know, what it really comes down to is they supply the IDF, and everybody knows that Israel is the most progressive country on the planet when it comes to gay rights. So oh, really, when yeah, you think about it, Raytheon is an ally. Let's not talk about Raytheon anymore. Yeah, no, I mean, but that's, 
irony is fucking dead, right? Like it's dead. They they just do it now. Yeah, irony is dead, and we sit on its corpse like a throne. Right. It smells real shitty. I'm using the knees as in a little ottoman. Which, you know, all this new reporting about all the minerals in Afghanistan that the world needs, it almost makes me wonder, are they telegraphing to the Taliban that like, hey, if you behave and act like Saudi and just give us all the minerals real cheap, then you can do whatever you want to anybody. Really? Because my takeaway is I have bargaining chips. Now, um, Corey, Paul, help me out here, but did not the Taliban, when they were in control of Afghanistan last, did they not turn down a pipeline deal? They did, actually. That's one of the big lines of continuity that's uh, that's talked about in the book Ghost Wars that I'm revisiting. There was an American oil company that was trying to negotiate a pipeline deal that would have cut through a, a key part of Afghanistan and they needed a stable government. And so they were actively negotiating with the Taliban, trying to persuade and influence and lobby American government officials to legitimize the Taliban. This is during the Clinton administration to legitimize the Taliban and to essentially help them because at that time like the Taliban controlled parts of the country and then the former uh, some of the former Mujahideen fighters that we had supported in the 80s were controlling other parts of the country and the only way this pipeline deal was going to go through was if that is if there was one stable government otherwise capital was not going to finance the project was literally well they're just going to set up gates at their part of the property and start charging me tolls and then you're creasing my overhead I can't finance this in order for the banks to give money to the oil company that wanted to build the fucking pipeline, they needed the Taliban to be in charge of all of Afghanistan. And that we had oil guys who were actively lobbying the United States government during the Clinton administration to make that happen. And then 9-11. Look, let me yeah. tell you, I know these beautiful group of boys down in Southeast Asia. You are going to love them. I just need you to, I, I mean, they just want to hear from you. They love, they love to hear from you, Mr. President. Anyway, I got to go. Here's my money. I mean, thank you for giving the detailed perspective on that. That was that was one of those things that was an article of faith growing up, you know, that uh, I never heard the full details on. Yeah, it was a, it was something. You know, that's capitalism for you, though, right? Well, you got. How are you going to keep that machine well oiled without a lot of blood of the workers and oil? Haha. <laughs> what? <laughs> nah, you know, go back to the classics. Okay, so let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about empathy. Um, it's almost like empire exists primarily to extract material resources out of other people's space against their will. Yeah, almost like empires exist to serve capital. What? Hey, <laughs> you don't say. War is about money. Unbelievable. <laughs> Well, I mean, let's let's not actually hold on. So I want to bring Quark's wisdom to bear here. Uh, Quark actually is one of the better people on this entire issue. So there is, and this is a Maquis episode, which we can talk about the Maquis in just a second. I think they're legitimate freedom fighters trying to hold their own in a very bad situation. They also have fake Riker on their side, which rules. That being said, he is captured with a Vulcan who is a member of the Maquis. And he points out to her that she is continuing to press a war in which she has an advantage. And and he points out that the price of peace has never been cheaper. And that real is it. And like, there is a sort of. I love that. Episode. Right? And he's mm -hmm. like, why are you not getting this idiot? You have them. They are, they have you. They were talking to you. They will make a deal. You were never going to get a deal last week. Take the D get a deal. 
And yeah, I, right. And capital has mm-hmm. found a way to profit from this regardless so that they no longer, I mean, like the guys that get rich are the ones that sell the pickaxes, not the guys that yeah. strike the gold is going to keep being the problem. And like, I think that that is an adaptation that capital has found that we are having a lot of challenges figuring out because they just profit from the war, right? Because the winner in Afghanistan was, of course, the companies that pour the concrete and build the shit and built all the stuff yep. that the Taliban yeah. is now in. Yeah. And the observation you just made, or Quark's observation, I should say, about the price of peace, like, let's not forget how many times the Taliban offered to hand over bin Laden before we even invaded. And again, after Which we again invaded. was like for three weeks. They had even three weeks. They were like, oh shit, we got his ass. We will totally send him right to, you want him? We have him. Y'all seem super right, mad. Because nobody wants a yeah. war with the United States because we're literally one thing and it's a machine that kills Please, stuff. please don't come here. Again. Thank you. Right. But not just about bin Laden. Even even after bin Laden was killed and was no longer part of the equation, like they tried multiple times to surrender and we kept saying, nah, we're just going to keep like, on. Like, oh, I know yeah. him and it's put silent like, gosh, on the phone. I wonder why this ended badly. Yeah. Make a deal. Yeah. That is the essence of white supremacy and imperialism from the United States, right? Of the United States empire. And really this descends from the British empire and sort of other European empires and sort of Christianity generally, right? But it's that sense of entitlement to correct people. Mm -hmm. And it's not enough to win. They have to agree with you, right? They have to agree that they lost and that you were better. Oh, you are quoting Gul Dukat right now. You are quoting Gul Dukat right now. Yeah. The mouthpiece of Empire. Yes. That's all right. So I do have a game for us to wrap up and try and make this a little funnier because there was some comedy to erupt from this horrific loss and senseless waste of human life and resources. Uh, And that, of course, is the Bin Laden's Mountain Fortress diagram, which you may have seen in Time magazine (laughs) in early 2000 and late 2001, early 2002. Uh, And I have placed this in the chat and I will uh, we you can Google it yourselves, listeners, but we will also tweet it out a day of the episode and it let's hope we put it in the show notes but the likelihood that that ever happens is so low and thank you for your patience um so it's bin laden bin laden's mountain fortress tag yourself i of course so we're tagging ourselves like where which are we would you be in which the of these captains yeah. are you is really what i want because that's what will be wow they really did make him out to be a whole bond villain huh oh, just looking yeah. this over yeah they did I, for example, am caves are cut deep inside the mountain to avoid the possibility of detection by thermal sensing equipment. As though it weren't like (laughs) a thousand degrees all the time. I mean, I assume I know it gets cold in Afghanistan as well. So sure. Uh, It does get very, very cold in Afghanistan as well, but also very hot. The man is not cutting this uh, island of uh, Guns of Navarone. It was a movie, never happened, playset into a mountain. It's not happening. You just ride around to go to buildings like a regular person. Yeah. So I think I would either be exits are hidden behind rocks and mud walls. A hidden gem, if you will. (laughs) Or the very helpful gentleman in the foreground who is telling us valleys leading to the caves are heavily guarded by militiamen, presumably about himself. Oh, yeah, no, that's definitely a speech bubble. He's just saying that out loud to the yes. viewer. Yeah, no, it's like a far side kind of that thing. Yeah, it's like fucking clippy, but for jihad. 
I could see myself working around the hydroelectric power is generated from mountain streams just because I could be all about like, yeah, we're doing some some warlord stuff, but we're also very uh, renewable energy it's conscious. super green. You know? I mean, you know, we don't want to be an oil country forever. We want to be a green energy dictatorship. Right. We need to diversify. Our giant mountain <laughs> compound. Like, I love that. Are there a lot of mountain streams sufficient to generate hydroelectric power, do you think, in Afghanistan? Yeah, I don't know about sufficient to generate hydroelectric power. There are definitely some, I mean, the, the mountains there really well, are I know it's the birthplace stunning. of apples and cannabis in terms of biodiversity, and that fucking rules. Uh, so there has to be water, but it does seem mm -hmm. like ambitious to be running a, this whole compound with elevators and air shafts, giant vaulted ceilings. So was this, to be clear, was this speculative oh yeah no 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 this is they, no one could okay. ever build this this could not this yeah, okay. is no way this could exist it's an engineering <laughs> so, impossibility where this came this came from yeah. time magazine some jerk off that consultant was like well we got to make them scared of the thing what could they wow. possibly be building in there that would be scary enough for us to go to a fucking war in three weeks after the like i've got to divert got your it. eyes from the national tragedy and get you into this idea with and it's been like a year year and a half maybe like at this point because i assume this is late this is after we didn't instantly win the war and they were like well why haven't we right. instantly won oh well it must be because he's got arms and ammunition including stinger missiles where'd those come from are stored in underground armories i think this was about the time that like geraldo rivera was on the ground with some troops and like started drawing a map on the ground and like giving away troop positions like motherfucker no amazing <laughs> this shit was hilarious why are we like this? Why are we like this, y'all? I mean, oh, we've no. finally mastered society no. as spectacle. That's why That's why I went to Iraq as a capitalist and I'm leaving, well, well, actually as a person who served capital and I left Afghanistan as a communist. So, you know, uh, you know you a lot of people <laughs> found communism in Afghanistan. So that is, that is apropos. <laughs> yeah. There's not like, there's no non-bummer way to talk about war. There's not. Well, we're, that's why we're going to have our friends from Left Flank Vets on next week. And we're going to unpack uh -huh. this a little bit more. Because really, what I what I really want us to do is like, you know, this is an observation that Paul has made many times. And I, I would really like for us to try to unpack this more in our next discussion, which is the central premise of Star Trek is what if there was a war so bad that we didn't do war anymore? And I think right. we need to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I think that'll be a great topic to talk about next week, too. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the central conceit of Star Trek turns out to be very much a conceit. No, I'll just walk into a weird yes. booth if you give it to me and it's not complicated. It makes my life easy. You just tell me I have to. I'm like, all right, as long as I don't lose my phone. Right. I mean, weeks. it's less worse, right? It is literally <laughs> less worse. And that is a lot of what we're learning about the I way Star Trek I would rather walk works. into a booth than die slowly because I don't have health care, you know? Well, look, you have the other option of being a Jem'Hadar bred Ooh. for the purpose of fighting a war and mm. addicted to a weird cum drug and you live to be maybe 15 <laughs> it is fun to watch them meet dax and they're like how old are you She's like 900 and something they're like wow i'm oh sick. fuck am i like, a wow, I'm six oh, shit. she's like bummer amy you are by the way are you a gem hadar the weird cum drug is what makes it it's just cum isn't it <laughs> nope i uh, know no further questions anyway uh but uh, is it a weird drug for cum or of cum listeners sound off in the comments i'll leave y'all to think about that <laughs> For a week. <laughs> we are, as always, gay-space communism. Uh, I'm Paul Byron at hashtag subtext. Check out, of course, our Twitter at gayspacecast and keep listening to the show. Tell other people to listen to it. Rachel, you say some stuff now. 
Hello, we are also a part of Not Safe Media Network, which is a cooperative, if y'all have been paying attention to the current affairs news, of podcasters and activists and organizers who just wanted to make content for the left and didn't want to have to sell our souls to like Patreon or whatever to do it. That being said, if you would like to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash not safe. And I personally am Rachel Khan. You can find me on Twitter at Punished Rachel K, or you can find me at Reach Rachel Khan literally everywhere else. I've been Amy Hassel, y'all. Um, I'm a Hassel on Twitter. That's uh, two S's and four A's if you arrange them correctly. You're also a Hassel in real life <laughs> and in the internet. <laughs> that's the first time i've heard you say your name that way and it's 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 adorable but it's also not true you're a delight you're a, just a beautiful person and i'm Corey archibald i've been the one who's been ranting and screaming about afghanistan this whole episode so sorry but also not uh you can find me on twitter at cm archibald and uh, i'll probably be doing a lot more ranting about afghanistan there well, anyway, that's us. We hope to be with you again with another breaking news version of this conversation next week. But if not, something horrible happened to some part of that. Anyway, space the rich, everybody. Space the rich. Space the rich. Love y'all. <laughs> Love you.